Well, that was uh, some serious cuteness, wasn't it? And uh, really good news. And uh, I want to take a few minutes. If you have a Bible, uh, you can open it to John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you probably have a phone, and you can Google John chapter 6 and uh, verses 38 through 40. Uh, But I want to take a few minutes and talk with you a little bit about the significance of Jesus. What what makes Jesus so important? We are uh, here, obviously, to uh, celebrate Jesus today. It's it's Christmas, and uh, this weekend we're thinking especially about his birth, and we want to get uh, Jesus right. We want to get Jesus right in our minds, the way that we think about him, we want to understand him correctly, intellectually, but also we want to get Jesus right in our hearts. That's a, that's a big part. We want to go from our minds to our hearts to respond to Jesus the way we're supposed to respond. And we're working on that because a lot of people don't. We know a lot of people don't and haven't responded to Jesus correctly, uh, even historically. In his day, a lot of people got Jesus wrong. It's not a given just because you are celebrating a Christmas that you respond to Jesus right, that you know who he is. And that's actually part of what's happening in John chapter 6, because uh, Jesus is revealing himself in some pretty massive ways here uh, by doing things that are just shocking, like feeding 5,000 people with just a few pieces of bread and walking on water. And of course, that's amazing in and of itself, but it's even more powerful when you know the context here in John because there's a comparison to Moses going on. And Moses was this key Old Testament figure sent to deliver God's people. And God used him to do some great things as he was saving them, like feeding the people in the wilderness and parting the Red Sea. And we're seeing that Jesus is bigger and better because he's doing things that Moses did, but bigger and better and by himself too. And the people are responding and getting excited and starting to say things like, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. This is verse 14. And the prophet is someone that Moses predicted in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And some of them even want to make Jesus king. And so it seems like kind of a a big moment if you're reading the Gospel of John for the first time because it maybe feels like a little bit of momentum, especially nowadays when it's hard to get people excited about Jesus at all. And there's even a point in this chapter when Jesus wants to get away by himself and the people notice that he's not there and they can't find him. A whole crowd goes on this journey to find him. It literally says at the end of verse 24, they were seeking Jesus which maybe, again, sounds great. They were seeking Jesus. But Jesus makes it clear that it's not great as you work your way through this chapter because they're not seeking him for the right reasons. They're celebrating Jesus. There's a lot of talk about Jesus, a lot of excitement, but they're not really understanding the significance of Jesus. And so Jesus does some explaining All throughout the Gospel of John, you find Jesus explaining. This is Jesus in his own words, a lot of it. And in John chapter 6, Jesus is explaining. And one of the things Jesus does to explain is use the Old Testament and use word pictures. So I guess that's two, two things. But he uses the Old Testament and he uses word pictures. And one of the word pictures he uses here is a really famous one. You might know it. 
because he says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. And there's a series of these I am statements that Jesus makes throughout the Gospel of John. I am this or I am that. And this is the first of them. I am the bread of life. And that word picture flows out of an Old Testament illustration that Jesus is using. There's a context. You remember how he fed the 5,000 people bread in the wilderness earlier. And that got the people thinking, we would like some more bread. And that's why they were trying to find Jesus. And when they do, Jesus says, you're missing the point. You're being way too superficial because that miracle was supposed to get you thinking about something more significant than what you're going to eat next. And they are like, what could be more significant than what we're going to eat next? And Jesus is like, let me tell you what. Believing that I am the one God sent, that is what is more significant. Verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And that, of course, is not the work they were interested in doing and why they were interested in Jesus and why they were trying to make Jesus king and why they're asking about bread because they were interested in how they could use Jesus to get what they wanted right in that moment. They were focused on the now like a lot of people today actually. And so they say, what sign are you going to give us so we can believe that? Because when God saved us the last time, the one he sent to save us gave us bread in the wilderness, which is kind of why we're asking for bread now. Like, isn't that the whole point? And Jesus is like, again, no, you're not quite understanding what's going on now or back then, really. Because first off, it was ultimately God who gave that bread, not Moses. And now God is giving that bread again, and that bread is actually a person. And so this is like a spiritual metaphor. Jesus is going deep, like he often does in John. But in case they're confused about what he means, he explains and he says, that bread is me. I am the bread of life, verse 35. And so you are coming to me and you're thinking about right now and you're asking for bread, but you need to understand that God is sending you a person and it's better than bread because God is working in a world-changing way through me, through Jesus, to do something more than just provide for your material needs for a short period of time. He's providing a salvation that lasts and deals with fundamental problems, which is why Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And obviously, he's not talking about physical hunger and thirst there. And one way we know that is because whoever drinks and eats, he doesn't say. He says, whoever comes and believes, that's how you don't hunger. That's how you don't thirst. And so this is bigger and better. And if maybe that's a little abstract for us, never hungering and never thirsting through believing. Jesus explains later what he means pretty simply. If you look down at verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. And so in other words, though you may want God to deal with your physical thirst and your finger, physical hunger right now, that's not actually your primary problem. And we know that because he's done that before and all the people he did it for 
died. And so it's not enough to just want God to provide another salvation like that because you really need God to deal with even bigger problems, more fundamental problems, which is why he sent me. That's why he sent Jesus. Jesus is the bread of life. In the middle of verse 51, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Which of course is huge. And it's part of why we're celebrating Jesus thousands of years later. It's because there is no one like Jesus. I mean, God's raised up a lot of people in this world. And God has done a lot of things in this world. But we look at Jesus and we compare him to everyone else in the Bible, in history, and to everything else God has done in the Bible and in history. And Jesus is bigger and better because he's not just another great teacher who's come to instruct us. And he's not just another great doctor who has come to help us have better health. And he's not just a great politician who's come to make our society function more smoothly. And he's not just another great person who's come to show us how to give, live a good life. He is a savior, the savior, the, the, the savior. And he's come to save us. That's why we celebrate. Which, of course, is what makes our celebration different than a lot of people around us uh, this Christmas. Because not everyone knows that. And not everyone believes that. And that's not why they're getting together and why they're excited. And you know, not everyone believed that back then either. And that's part of the problem Jesus is addressing here in John, actually. And you see that right after he says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He says in verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. But we do. Again, those of us who are believers who understand what Christmas is about, we do. And that's part of what makes this so amazing because they saw and did not believe, but we're here and we did not see, but we do believe. And how did that happen? In verse 37, Jesus said, it happened because no one can stop God from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish through Jesus. In Jesus's words, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so we're here because God the Father has a plan to save people through Jesus. He is going to give people to Jesus and those people he gives to Jesus are going to come to Jesus. And when they come, Jesus is going to accept them and protect them and they are going to be saved. And that's us and anyone who believes on Jesus. That is the big promise of Christmas. Come, believe and be saved. And that is so big, right? When we look at what we do at Christmas and what we do at church and you look at Jesus, this person that we're celebrating and you start to realize what's going on, that this is not just a nice tradition or a ritual. You know, like, like go to church with your family on Christmas, then go see the Christmas lights and maybe watch a Hallmark movie after, isn't that nice? Yeah, that is nice, but this is more than nice. What's happening here this Christmas Eve or this uh, Eve of Christmas Eve is that we're taking this opportunity to kind of make this big, bold statement as Christians about God 
and about the way God is working in this world as we remember Jesus' birth with singing and with lighting candles and with little cute children standing up here and quoting verses and with getting together and with presents and with doing whatever we can to celebrate. We're doing it because we believe Jesus is the key to eternal life and because we believe that all this terrible stuff we see around us and all this darkness and everything Satan does and that this world does and all this unbelief and all this evil that we see and all this sadness, we see that, we feel that, and yet we believe, we know that none of that, none of that can stop God from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish through Jesus, which is to save us. Which is a, a lot to say about Jesus and a lot to say about us. And of course, we know that. If you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, I hope you realize that we realize that. We realize how big this is because, look, we're taking every single person who ever lived, even really great people, and we're putting them all in one category. And then we're taking Jesus and we're putting him in a category all by himself. There is Jesus and there's everybody else. And we're looking at what for us seems impossible, things like never being hungry and never thirsting, and that's Jesus describing living forever, being completely satisfied. That's what we mean when we say Jesus is able to save us. We're looking at what seems impossible for us, and we're saying that Jesus is able to raise us from the dead and to give us eternal life. And we're talking about this God too, this God who's infinite, who's eternal, who holds the universe in the palm of his hand, who is outside of creation, who's not part of creation. And we're saying that he is working in this world through Jesus so that we can be part of this. We're part of this great big plan he has. And we know that's big, obviously, that's really big. And actually that's so big that even as believers, we might look at that and wonder for a minute. If we look at that and think about that and really start to get our minds around that, what Christmas means, the real significance of Jesus, we might ask, how can we be sure? Looking at Jesus, looking at us, how can we be sure? And there are different ways the Bible answers that question, but one answer to that question is to look more closely at Jesus, the person of Jesus, which is one thing I love about this holiday because it's a chance we've been given every year to focus on what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is. And if it doesn't do that, the truth is it's not much of a holiday to be excited about. The true significance of Christmas is that it forces us back to consider Jesus, who is Jesus. And that is so important for us to do because it's knowing Jesus that gives us assurance that he can and will do everything we're hoping he'll do. And really we need more than just one day a year to think about the person of Jesus because Jesus is such a profound person that the closer you look at him, the bigger he, he gets. He's like this glorious mystery. And yet in John chapter 6, here he does give us a, a very simple explanation that can help us. We get a glimpse of who he is in verses 38 through 40, where Jesus says, for, do you see that at the beginning of verse 38, for, which means this is an explanation. It's part of an argument. You see and you do not believe and so you're opposed to me and what God's doing, but that doesn't stop God from doing what he's doing for. Like, let me give you some reasons. You can be confident about this. Two reasons specifically. And those reasons have to do with the person of Jesus. 
who he is. And the, the first reason is because of where he came from. Where did Jesus come from? If you want to understand the significance of Jesus, you need to understand this. He says in verse 38, for I have come down from heaven. Which I guess you might expect him to say if you've come to church before, but is really unique. It's not something that you can say about uh, anyone else. Even really great people in the Bible, like Moses, can't say, I've come down from heaven. And we can't say it either. And yet Jesus says it in this passage a lot. Verse 33, for the bread is he who came down from heaven. This verse, I have come down from heaven. Verse 41, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And verse 50 and 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. And so it seems like this is a major, major point that Jesus is stressing. And it makes sense for him to stress it because it's unique. And it's something that needs to be pointed out and explained for us because it's never been true of anyone else. And the people there listening recognize that. If you look at verse 42, they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? It's like they're shaking their heads, looking at Jesus and just shaking their heads because they know that everyday humans can't say that. That's not something you can say as a human. And yet Jesus is clearly a human. And so how can he say this? I have come down from heaven. Because what's he saying? He's saying that he existed before he was born. That's the point. And so this is a statement about his pre-existence. And in case that's not clear here, because you think maybe he's just speaking poetically, John makes this a theme all throughout his gospel. And so it's not just here in this one place, because John doesn't want you to miss this or to misinterpret it. And so from the beginning, John 1.1, 1, 1, the very first verse, he's been saying things like, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with the God, with God and word, the word was God. And that's talking about Jesus before he became man. He's the word. And John says he was in the beginning with God. And so you can know this was not just an idea that came later either, like one the apostles came up with on their own after Jesus died. John tells us that this was part of the message that was preached about Jesus, even if you go all the way back to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was an Old Testament prophet, the last one. And so there was a lot that he didn't know about Jesus. But you know what John the Baptist did know from the get-go? John 1.15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And you remember John the Baptist was Jesus's older cousin. And so humanly speaking, he came before Jesus. But he understood that Jesus existed eternally before he was ever born. And that's why he can say, he came before me because John knew he didn't exist before he was born. He was just born, John, but not Jesus. Jesus was different. Jesus did exist in heaven before he existed as a man here on earth, which must have blown John's mind a little. How do you get your mind around the fact that your cousin is God? And it should blow your mind a little, especially because as we look at Jesus, we're looking at someone who is like us. And you need to, to know that we are humans and he's a human. And that's why we're celebrating the fact that he was born. And so that means he was a baby. And we're talking about a real baby, a real human being. So this is not pretending when we talk about Jesus coming down from heaven into this world and becoming a human. This is not like when your child pretends to be a puppy or something. And you know they're not really a puppy, but they're crawling on the floor barking 
And you know, it's not just sort of someone picking up a body and putting it on for a while either, like someone might put on a spacesuit. No, Jesus had a full and perfect human nature. Everything that we are, apart from sin, he was. He was a real man. And yet, at the same time, clearly, there's something more going on with Jesus because he says that he existed before he became man. I came down from heaven. And so you're like, how does someone exist before he's born, you know? Because he's talking about a real existence, not just a a thought or an idea. He was there. Jesus had a mind, a will. He was a person. And so how does that happen? Existing before you existed. That's like saying, I lived before I lived. And so it's not something that makes sense for someone who is merely a human to say. And yet, of course, the reason Jesus can say this is because he was not merely another human. And now we're like getting into a really deep truth. Merry Christmas. This is, this is like my gift to you. Which is that before he became man, before he took on human nature, added that to himself, the Bible says that Jesus existed as the eternal son of God. And so he's like us, but he's definitely different as well because we just have one nature, a human nature. But Jesus has two natures. If you're gonna get your doctrine of Jesus right, He is one person with two natures, a truly human nature and a divine one. Throughout church history, they put it like this, Jesus became what he was not, man, without ceasing to be what he always was, fully God. And you see both of these realities in the gospels right there in front of you repeatedly, like first of all, the fact that he was born of a woman is a pretty big proof of his human nature. And so the gospels talk about him growing like other humans do. Now, obviously, the fact that he died is another big evidence of his humanity as well. And yet it's clear throughout the Gospels that Jesus is also fully God. For example, he accepts honor. That's due God alone. So like you're only supposed to worship God. That's very clear. And yet Jesus receives worship gladly, without apology. As we read the Gospels, we find that he has characteristics that are only true of God in other places in the Bible, like being unchanging, how he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's only true of God anywhere else, obviously, because we're always changing. And he's called the same names God is called, the big one being Lord. And he does things that only God can do, like forgive sins. And you know, what did they say when he did that? They said he's blaspheming because they knew what it meant. He's claiming to be God. And so this is where we have to step back and worship, really. If you're the kind of person who doesn't like to think big thoughts, I understand it can be hard sometimes to really think big thoughts. But at Christmas, if you're going to understand Christmas, we're really forced to think about some big things. This is the time of year where we need to push ourselves to think about some really big things, like Jesus being fully God and fully man. And actually, to understand that, we have to go even a little deeper. Because it's not just God becoming man. We're talking about now. It is the second person of the Godhead who has become man. Are you ready for this? We have to think about the Trinity. We believe in one God who exists in three persons. If we're going to get this right, when we talk about Jesus, we have to kind of be specific. We believe in one God who exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they're distinct persons too, meaning that God the Father is not God the Son, and God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit. And so these are not 
like three different roles being played by one person where God's putting on three different hats real quickly. But at the same time, these are not three separate gods either that we're talking about. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one God. And so like someone has said, this one God is a they, and they are all working together to accomplish our salvation. The Bible talks about God the Father as the one who planned it, and God the Holy Spirit as the one who applies it, and God the Son as being the one who accomplishes it by first coming into our world and taking on human nature, which is one reason we're confident as we look at Jesus here, claiming to be able to do things that no other human in history could do because we know that he's not exactly like every other human in history. And one way we know that is because of where he came from. He came down from heaven. For I came down from heaven. I can do this. For I came down from heaven. That's first where he came from. The eternal son of God entered into this world. That's who we're talking about when we talk about Jesus at Christmas. But why? And this is second. Why did he come? Because he didn't just come from heaven to come from heaven. Like, you know, let me check it out down there. Let me see what it's like. No, there's, there's a goal, there's an end, there's a purpose. And this is really what Jesus wants you to know here in John 6. He's not just telling you the fact that he's come down from heaven, but explaining the purpose of his coming down from heaven. And you see that in verse 38 again, where he says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And it's that last phrase, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, which tells us why he came. And that's a really profound statement. And it would be good to take a deep dive into some of what's going on here because there's really just a lot. But since it's Christmas Eve, let me fast forward a little and say the part that's obvious, which is that Jesus came from heaven to do God the Father's will. Because that's the emphasis. The point is not that Jesus's will was somehow different than the Father's. And if we think like that, it's gonna get us off track. It did me a little as I was thinking about this passage, actually, because as a human, Jesus does have a will. And as God, he has a will as well. And as God, obviously, the Son does not have a different will than the Father. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all have one will, one purpose. But as a human, Jesus does have a human will. And so he's got a divine will and a human will. You know, there was someone in church history who got his tongue cut out for preaching that, but it's true. It was worth getting his tongue cut out for because if that's not true, we can't be saved because Jesus wouldn't be a true human without two natures and two wills, which is different and hard to understand, but I don't think we have to get lost in all that actually to understand what he means here because I don't think Jesus is contrasting his human will with God the Father's will in this verse but using a figure of speech instead, a way of talking to emphasize the incarnation and our salvation wasn't just some plan he came up with by himself. If you, if you think about the people looking at Jesus as he's making these big statements, there are all these people there and they're seeing this man standing in front of them talking, right? And you can imagine them being like, what is this guy saying? Isn't this Joseph's son? And he's like, look, don't 
think this is just some idea that I came up with now. You need to understand the whole reason I'm here. Everything I do, literally everything I do, is to accomplish God the Father's will. And again, bold print, the Father's will. Because he's not saying, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, to get us thinking all these philosophical thoughts like, does Jesus have a different will than God the Father or something? but instead almost the opposite really, because he's wanting to emphasize to make really, really clear that he has come to do exactly what God the Father wants. That is his will. His will is the Father's will. And that's the part we're supposed to be thinking about, the Father's will. And will involves want, will, want. God the Father wants something and he doesn't just want it. He has a plan to get it. And that's why Jesus became man. If you wanna get to the root reason, according to Jesus, Jesus doesn't begin with us. He doesn't begin with man when he explains the incarnation, but with God, the Father specifically. The purpose of the incarnation is to please God the Father and to perform his will, which is awesome. If you, if you stop and feel that, God the Father has a, has a plan. And you know, big picture where this plan starts because it's not with Jesus here in John 6. It's all the way back before the beginning of time. It's pre-time. If you think about the Son of God coming down from heaven, this colossal humiliation, it was not God just deciding one day to show off, like, look at me, I can become man. And it was not God just feeling badly one day as he looks at us and says, you know what? They're really in trouble down there, so I better try to do something. Why not an incarnation? That might work. We might as well give that a shot. No, as someone put it, this was the execution in time of an eternal plan, a plan that came from God's compassionate heart made even before the foundation of the world. And so we're talking about, as another theologian explains, a pre-time, pre-incarnational agreement between the members of the Trinity. Did your head just explode? <laughs> and so you look at Jesus, God enters this world, and this is part of a plan. This is part of a plan that God has been working on for a long time. Even actually, if you just start in the Old Testament, if you wanna have some, some fun, just trace in the Old Testament how long God's been working on this salvation plan. Next uh, year on Wednesday nights, we're gonna work through the Old Testament and see this. I was even thinking of Christmas, for Christmas, actually, of preaching the first gospel promise in the Bible. Do you know where the first gospel message is preached in the Bible? You don't have to go very far in your Bible. It's Genesis 3.15. So this is like two pages in your Bible. And you can actually make a case there that two pages in, God promises the virgin birth. And so even just going back to the beginning of the world, you see that God's been working on this plan for a long time now. But here's something beautiful, because to know where this plan really got started, you have to go back before the beginning of the world, because this is a pre-time, pre-incarnational agreement, as Paul says somewhere. This is a promise God made before the ages began. That's why Jesus came down from heaven. He was given a mission by God the Father, and that's why you can be confident no matter how bad it gets and what the world does and how dark it is out there because the mission Jesus was given from before the beginning of time specifically was what? Verse 39, it was to save, it's to save. Jesus says, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me 
but raise it up on the last day. And verse 40 again, for this is the will of my father. This is what my father wants. This is what my father planned, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And you know, there's a lot of great words in there for you to enjoy. Like losing nothing. What does God the Father want? He doesn't want Jesus to lose any of those who believe in him. And then raising the believer up. What does God the Father want? He wants Jesus to accomplish the resurrection of the dead for those who are his people. And then there is God wanting Jesus to give eternal life to those who believe. And those are all amazing. But you know, maybe the most important phrase there, it's in verse 39 where Jesus says, the father's will is that I should lose none of all that he has given me. You might underline in your mind all that he has given me, given me. Because that's kind of where all this starts. And this is so important because when we think about Christmas and Jesus's mission and God's plan and why Jesus came, we usually start with us and what he came to do for us. And that's good. We should think about what he came to do for us. But we don't want to miss what God the Father wants to do for Jesus. And this is right on the border of incomprehensible, being incomprehensible actually, but you want to understand the significance of Jesus. You have to understand God the Father has a plan from before the beginning of the world, and that plan is to give Jesus something. He's giving Jesus us. I mean, we're part of something big, something God the Father has been planning to do for his son from before the beginning of the world. Ephesians 1.4, Titus 1.2, 2 Timothy 1.9, you can look them up, but God the Father loves the son with an eternal love. And what does love do? It gives, love gives. John MacArthur explains, at some eternal moment, the father desired to express his perfect love for the son. And the way he determined was to give to the son a redeemed humanity whose purpose would be throughout all the eons of eternity to praise and glorify the son and serve him perfectly. That was the father's love gift. And ultimately, that's why we know Jesus can do and will do everything exactly the way he promised to do it. And that everyone, absolutely everyone, every single last one who looks on the Son and believes in the Son will have eternal life and that he will raise them up on the last day, no matter how bad it looks, no matter how bad it gets. And that's why we get together and talk about Jesus and think about Jesus and remember Jesus and worship Jesus because we look at ourselves and you look at yourself, you know, you stand in front of the mirror maybe and you look at yourself and you get this feeling of your own insignificance, your smallness, and you look at what Christmas really means, the significance of Jesus, where Jesus came from, why Jesus came to die as part of God, the Father's great big eternal plan to glorify Jesus by saving you and giving you to him. And what do you do with that? What do you do? How do you respond? First, you, 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 you have to stop being so concerned about this little moment that you're living in right now and having to have what you want. Because that's like looking at, at your cell phone and how many likes you got 
on Facebook when you're staring in the face of the most profound, beautiful thing that ever happened in the entire universe. No, you have to put that down and look up at Jesus. Look at Jesus and what God's doing through Jesus. Look at what you can be a part of. Look at what you are a part of if you're a Christian and get a sense of just how epic this story is. Don't shrink the size of your life down to the size of your life. You get to be part of something that goes back from before the beginning of the world and goes past the end of this one. So stop and be amazed this Christmas by by Jesus and do what he says. Because what does he say he wants this person who's come down from heaven to earth, this person who's come to provide a complete and total salvation? He says he wants you to come. He wants you to look. And he wants you to believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God the Father is saving people through his son, Jesus. He's offering the bread of life. He has a plan so that you can never hunger and never thirst, and he's going to do it. You do nothing. Jesus does everything. He sent the perfect, complete, total Savior, and what he wants from you, demands of you, is that you trust that Jesus is able to do everything he says he's able to do, and that you worship him for it. Will you do that this Christmas? Let's pray. God, help, help us. Like these people back in John, we get so focused on the now. Give us bread, give us bread, give us bread, give us bread, when the bread of life is standing in front of us. And so, Lord, we we ask that you would slow us down this Christmas season and that you would show us the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, and that we would look, we would believe, and we would worship. We would worship him for doing what we could never do, for doing what we do not deserve, providing a complete and total salvation for those who don't deserve it, for people like us. We love you, Jesus. Come again soon and save us. We ask this in your name. Amen.